Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Porcine, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's outpost in San Francisco. It is Thursday, October 10th, and we've got a lot to talk about this week. Remember the blockbuster drug Vioxx that got pulled from the market because of safety risks? Well, it's being resurrected. Our colleague Matt Herper joins us to tell us the backstory. The synthetic biology industry is growing up and trying to establish its presence in Washington. We'll explain how a back-end service industry rebranded itself into one of the buzziest fields in the life sciences. Healthcare journalist Maggie Fox has spent the past few months talking to venture capitalists about how they create and fund biotech startups. Maggie's findings are contained in a new and richly detailed report published this week by STAT, and she joins us to discuss what she learned in the process. But first, a word about STAT+. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD. P-O-D. Important message for users of the drug Vioxx. The FDA warns that those who take Vioxx may double their risk of heart attack, stroke, or even sudden cardiac death. That might have sounded familiar if you've watched daytime television at any point over the last 15 years. It was one of the countless ads related to Vioxx, a blockbuster pain treatment whose ties to heart attack and stroke convinced its manufacturer, Merck, to pull it from the market back in 2004. But fast forward to now, and a small biotech company is plotting to bring Vioxx back, this time to treat a rare disease related to hemophilia. And that underlines a fairly obvious question. Are we sure this is a good idea? Joining us to discuss that is our colleague Matt Herper, who was very much at the front lines of the Vioxx saga back when it unfolded in the last decade. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Matt, before we get into Vioxx Redux, let's dig into the drug's past. This happened all when Damien and Rebecca were quite young. So uh, Matt, pull up a rocking chair and tell us how a blockbuster drug became synonymous with pharmaceutical danger. Well, just to set the scene, this is back when the radio was playing Hoobastank and Usher. And uh, I love saying Hoobastank. And I was in my early 20s at that point. And I got a call in 2004 from a PR person at Merck where she said, look, I know you're not up this early most of the time, but you need to get up and get down here because we're making an announcement. I'm not telling you what it is. We are voluntarily withdrawing Vox effective today. And we're taking this action because we believe it best serves the interests of patients. And this was a huge point of drama because not only was Vioxx a huge blockbuster drug, this was a $2 billion drug. They'd been in this war with Pfizer, which made Celebrex. But these worries about heart attacks had kind of been in the air for a while. And Merck had been saying no, it was the other drug they were comparing to, which actually had a cardiovascular benefit and kind of denying there was a problem. Then they made this sudden decision based on a trial they had to not only 
allow the FDA warnings, which would have been kind of the normal thing to do, but to actually pull the drug. And Matt, remind us, this Vioxx and those drugs, they were big. I mean, what kind of sales are we talking about? Vioxx was $2.5 billion and Celebrex was $3 billion. And the fact that I can remember those numbers off the top of my head tells you how incredibly important these were to these two companies. Right. Millions of people were taking them. Millions of people were taking them. And uh, the ads were everywhere. And that wound up being part of the controversy. And one of the reasons Merck decided to pull Vioxx was they thought that they would get credit for doing the right thing. History's kind of not been that kind to that judgment. The kind of conventional wisdom among drug companies is that you should do the opposite as Glaxo kind of did with Avandia and just keep fighting to the bitter end because the worst thing is going in front of juries and saying the drug has been pulled from the market. So cutting to the present, Damien, you wrote a story this week about the effort to bring Vioxx back. What's the idea there? Right. So there's a company in Massachusetts called Tremo Pharmaceuticals, which is developing Vioxx, which has since become generic in its time not being sold, for a condition called hemophilic arthropathy. And what that is, is it's akin to osteoarthritis, but it occurs to patients with hemophilia. Hemophilia, of course, is when you lack the proteins that help blood to clot, leading to uncontrolled bleeds. And hemophilic arthropathy occurs when blood pools in the joints, which leads to pain and inflammation and, in many cases, tissue damage. So, back in the, the halcyon days we were referring to of 2000, let's say, 2, hemophilia doctors were prescribing Vioxx off-label for this condition because it was helpful. The thing about painkillers is non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or NSAIDs like ibuprofen, for example, have been tied to cases of internal bleeding. And that's pretty manageable for most people. But if you have hemophilia, internal bleeding can be completely disastrous. So NSAIDs are no good for these patients. That made Vioxx, which doesn't have that same safety track record of bleeding, kind of the ideal treatment for pain related to hemophilic arthropathy. And I guess the internal bleeding here is stomach bleeding, which is the whole point of these drugs originally, although they got marked as amazing pain drugs, was actually that they'd hurt your stomach less than other NSAIDs like ibuprofen and naproxen. And obviously, if you have a hemophilia stomach bleed, that can be pretty awful. So with this comeback, aren't people worried about the heart attack and stroke issues that led to the 2004 recall in the first place? So yes, but also no. And, and this is kind of what was fascinating for me writing this story as someone who was otherwise occupied uh, with high school when the initial Vioxx saga played out, which is that the risk of heart attack and stroke is very real. The raw numbers, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of cardiovascular events that have been, in retrospect, linked to Vioxx. But as Matt and Adam mentioned earlier, we were talking about millions of patients who were getting the drug. And furthermore, it was being prescribed very liberally for lots of indications. So when I talked to hemophilia doctors about the concept or the prospect of a return of Vioxx, they actually weren't that concerned about this stuff because they feel comfortable that they could make sure that patients who are already at risk for heart attack and stroke would not get the drug, and furthermore, that they could monitor the biomarkers of cardiovascular health while patients were on the drug to be able to take them off of it or lower doses or whatever to mitigate that risk if, in fact, Vioxx were to return. You know, one of the things that comes up in covering medicine a lot is that drugs are for sick people and that a drug with a lot of risks in the right population can still be very valuable. It's balancing benefit and risk, right? And like thalidomide from, which is what Celgene was built on, is the classic example of a drug that was a terrible safety scandal and then was a huge benefit for patients with multiple myeloma. So, I mean, we hear this story a lot over and over. 
So Damien, what's next in this saga? So that's where this gets interesting. The medical case for bringing back Vioxx seemed pretty open and shut to the experts with whom I spoke. The business case for it is a little bit more complicated. So Tremo Pharmaceuticals, the company that is embarked upon this effort, they said in 2017 that they had agreed with the FDA on the design of a trial that, if successful, would help them apply for approval. However, it is now 2019, and that trial has not begun. They told me that they plan to start in 2020. Um, It's also worth mentioning that they told the Associated Press back in 2017 that they needed to raise upwards of $25 million to fund this endeavor. But according to documents with the SEC, they've only raised about $5.2 million. And, you know, this isn't what the company told me, but it does kind of underline the question have they struggled to make this case to investors? Are people worried that bringing back a now generic drug for a condition that affects, you know, there's only roughly 20,000 people with hemophilia in the United States and, and only a percentage of them have hemophilic arthropathy. So this is this is a rare indication. This might not be the best business idea. So the thing that I'm kind of staying tuned for is a sign that Tremo is going to be able to do this in the most basic way, which is to say, afford to run this study and convince people that this is worth doing and that there's money to be made by doing it. I'm reminded we had David Faschenbaum talking about finding old drugs for people with rare diseases and the barriers to doing that. And this seems like an example of that where there's probably not a business case, but maybe it would be a great option for hemophiliac patients to have. That's the other thing that's kind of fascinating about this is, yeah, to your point, there's an argument to be made that removing Vioxx from the market was not the wisest thing to do for Merck back in 2004. And furthermore, in the context of hemophilic arthropathy, if they hadn't, this wouldn't be a conversation at all about whether there was a business case because Vioxx would just be a generic treatment available from X number of manufacturers for a tiny amount of money and it would be prescribed off-label for this condition as it had been before it was withdrawn and we wouldn't be having this conversation whatsoever. Matt, thanks for joining us. Be careful getting out of that rocking chair. Thank you, guys. Next up, we're going to talk about an industry with one of the most cleverly rebranded names in the business, and that is synthetic biology. So the industry was in the news this week because its leaders just launched their first lobbying group. They also spent a day being faded at White House, and they schmoozed with staffers on Capitol Hill. It's a sign that the sector is growing up and realizing that it, just like its drug industry counterparts, has interests that need defending in Washington. But I think it's worth backing up because the backstory is really important in making sense of synthetic biology. Rebecca, you've gone to their big annual conference in San Francisco the past couple of years. How do you define synthetic biology? Yeah, so this is key in that there is not really a clear definition for what counts. And that's sort of the point because they want to welcome anyone who's working on ways to make biology easier to engineer. So we're talking about everything from new foods, agricultural techniques, textiles, consumer products. We're also talking about companies that read, write, and edit DNA. And then there's the sort of back-end lab stuff. So things like making pipetting robots and other machines um, meant to automate uh, lab work. There's even some overlap with biohacking. And there's increasingly a lot of money going into this field. So Rebecca, who are the biggest names in synthetic biology? So there's 
Twist Bioscience, which went public uh, about a year ago, and its stock has done very well since that IPO. It makes synthetic DNA and is probably the world's top supplier of these synthetic genes. Then there's also Ginkgo Bioworks based in Boston, and regular listeners of this podcast uh, will recognize their name. We discussed them a few weeks ago when they uh, raised money at a valuation that put them at over $4 billion. And Ginkgo designs microbes. So those companies are kind of branded as cutting edge and, and newfangled. And as a result, I kind of tend to think of synthetic biology as a young industry. But a lot of the backend services that we're talking about aren't new. So what exactly is new about what these companies are doing? Yeah, so that's sort of the clever rebranding here. Synthetic biology is an industry that, as a reporter, I've sometimes struggled to write about and, and kind of find an angle into because, you know, a lot of this backend stuff is just not that exciting to readers. You know, it's a lot easier to explain sort of how a new drug will impact your life as a patient. But some of this backend technology, not so sexy. And so I think rebranding as synthetic biology, this very cutting edge, newfangled, exciting area of science, uh, I have to hand it to their marketing people. And so what's the culture of this industry like compared with, for example, biotech or tech, which it you know, kind of sometimes straddles. Yeah, so synthetic biology has a very unique culture. I've sort of seen it firsthand uh, at their industry conference called SynBioBeta the last uh, couple of years. They are very sort of countercultural. They have this informal vibe. It seems like they're actually trying to have fun, uh, which is not so much the vibe you get at these buttoned up biotech conferences. One thing worth keeping in mind here is that you know, even as this industry is trying to go to Washington, uh, trying to kind of become a grown-up industry that schmoozes at the White House and on Capitol Hill, it was only two years ago that Josiah Zayner, that's the biohacker who's made an appearance on this podcast, crispered himself on stage at the synthetic biology conference. And I think that speaks to the big cultural shift that they're trying to make in putting down roots in Washington. And Rebecca, as you reported uh, this week, the synthetic biology industry is headed to Washington. They're setting up a lobbying group. So what sort of favors or what are they hoping to get out of that effort? Yeah, so they don't have sort of a clear list of demands or priorities yet. I think it's fair to say uh, they'll be concerned about how their products are regulated, some of the international trade issues that have been on the forefront recently. But I think their biggest priority so far in talking with the head of one of their industry groups is education. Most people, especially staffers and members of Congress in Washington, they don't know what synthetic biology is. And so I think telling their story helping lawmakers understand what it is they're actually doing and what those products look like will be an immediate priority. The evolution of their branding is kind of interesting because, as, as you mentioned before, Rebecca, the baseline technology and theory behind this stuff is not new. It was just like basically manufacturing, like back-end stuff that we don't write odes to in business journalism very commonly. And then there was the rebrand to this, you know, biohacking, world-changing, t-shirt-wearing, tattooed approach to science. But then, as you mentioned, now that they've mounted this, like, March on Washington, they've put their tattoos under button-up shirts and are trying to, again, rebrand as, you know, a serious pillar of American industry, which, I mean, all of it is very convenient. And I understand the motivations behind it, but it is kind of fascinating how synthetic biology is like this wriggling thing in our culture, apparently. A wriggling thing. I'm somehow 
<laughs> weirded out by that word. Yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Venture capitalists are raising a ton of healthcare money, and increasingly, those funds are being deployed in biotech. So in the second quarter alone, just over $4.5 billion in healthcare venture capital was raised, with nearly all of the money going to fund the creation of new biotech and drug companies or new drug discovery efforts, according to the consulting firm PwC. Biotech has consistently ranked number one in terms of venture funding since 2014, that's according to PwC. And that's ahead of e-commerce, automobile parts, and defense software. Healthcare journalist Maggie Fox has spent the past few months working on a new report that was published this week by STAT. It is titled, appropriately enough, The STAT User's Guide to Venture Capital in Biotech. Maggie joins us to talk about the stories and trends behind all that VC biotech money. Maggie, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Great to be with you. So Maggie, we mentioned at the outset the billions of dollars that VCs are raising and then investing in biotech, but Can you tell us more about where exactly that money is going? Are there diseases or areas of drug discovery that are attracting more attention than others? There are. Like traditional pharma, oncology is attracting a bunch of money. Oncology drugs have always been big money makers for drug companies. So a lot of the biotech efforts are going into cancer drugs, especially various kinds of immune therapies like stem cell replacement, uh, some of the other things, the newer versions of gene editing that go into a bone marrow replacement kind of fabric. Also new small molecules that would end up being pills that people could take. Another area of research is in genomics and genetics, thanks to cheaper, faster gene sequencing machines that are out there. It's easier to make targeted drugs using biotechnology. And then that leads into kind of gene therapy, cell therapy, stem cell therapy. Again, these treatments can be used for cancer, but also to treat rare diseases. So Maggie, when most people think of VCs, they picture an investor hearing a pitch from an entrepreneur and then deciding whether to write a check or not. But a lot of biotech VC firms are taking a different approach by actually bringing scientists in-house to incubate new companies based on really early scientific discoveries. Tell us more about that approach. It's becoming an ever more popular approach. I think a lot of um, people who were interested in going into VC realized that drugs were dying on that road in the valley of death. And these were probably promising drugs. It was just the problem of creating a company that could get that drug into development and into market. So a whole bunch of firms have decided to start actually building new companies completely from scratch. Think about Third Rock or Flagship Pioneering. Flagship actually have people on their staff who come up with the ideas and then go find the people that they need to develop those ideas into drugs. Other companies are working early on hand-in-hand with academic researchers, especially the ones who they know are going to be producing products down the road, and making sure they're in on the ground floor to help those people do the science while they do the hard work of building a company. There are some that just kind of lend a hand in that area and help guide the entrepreneurs along the road and offer them what help they think they need. There's a whole range of help now that venture capitalists offer, especially in biotech. 
Maggie, your report offers in-depth profiles of more than 50 biotech VC firms. Are there any that stand out to you or any that maybe are breaking the rules, doing things differently? Well, again, some of the companies I've just mentioned, Third Rock, Atlas, Flagship, they're kind of breaking the rules in that they are really helping from the ground up. They're doing things differently. There's also um, a company, Y Combinator, that's doing it just kind of the opposite way. They're letting all comers come and pitch their ideas. It's called a boot camp. They don't like that it's called a boot camp, but really that's that's the closest analogy there is, where the entrepreneurs who they have chosen to fund actually come on site, all get together and kind of go through this learning process of how to put a company together. So we've all heard quite a bit about the risk involved with drug development and the off-sided statistic that about 90% of drugs that enter clinical trials will eventually fail. I was curious if, you know, in the process of reporting all this, did you find evidence that VCs are improving those odds? Like is money being invested smarter today than it was in the past? Well, they'll tell you that. It's kind of hard to tell because VC's gone through a few iterations. It all kind of fell apart earlier this century. It's starting to come back VC in the biotech field. So some of these early investments haven't started to pay off yet. If you go back about 20 years, there's the example of a a company that was called Immunex, and they're the ones who came up with Embrel, which is, of course, one of the first immune modulators for rheumatoid arthritis that turned into an amazingly successful uh, drug. They have now sold that to Amgen. But that was a venture capital funded drug that has made it onto the market and made it big. And now, of course, there's lots of competitors. Other drugs, it's a little hard. They're not quite to market in a way that you could say, yes, this approach is working and getting drugs to people quicker. So Maggie, you wrote about both East Coast and West Coast VCs. As someone living in San Francisco, a place that is swarming with uh, venture capitalists, I'm curious, did you find sort of a cultural difference um, between VCs on on each coast? And, And if so, what did that look like? Well, the East Coast firms are kind of more buttoned up, as you might expect. Um, They're also, however, closely entwined with the academic centers that they work with. So, for example, uh, you know, the Cambridge, Massachusetts, Kendall Square area is probably the leading East Coast center of biotechnology, venture capital investment. So you do see that kind of close culture where they're, they're working with the big Ivy League names and big MBA names. Silicon Valley is not that different, but is producing a a little kind of more, let's say, um, casual approach to building a company. Perhaps they at least try to look a bit different, a bit more edgy, a bit more entrepreneurial. Overall, however, I think venture capital kind of shakes down into the same kind of model down the road. It's like you have to build the business around the science and the science has to be solid. And those are two things that really can't change. Maggie, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Epinado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and any other wriggling things we should cover on this podcast. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. 
And if you like what we do, tell a friend about the podcast or leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.